Hello everyone, welcome to the second episode of my podcast program, The Right Way. I am your host, Samuel Elliott. I want to first and foremost thank you so much for your patronage and hopefully having listened to the first episode of the show. Uh, If you haven't, then by all means, then please feel free to do so. It should be easily available there on Spotify. Uh, This episode is also going to feature another best-selling author, uh, historical fiction author by the name of Fiona McIntosh. Fiona has written in a broad assortment of genres, but uh, she's perhaps best known for her historical fiction work. And the novel in which we're going to be discussing is her latest historical fiction novel, The Champagne War, set in the outbreak of World War I in France. So, without further ado, please all give a big digital round of applause to Fiona McIntosh, who is discussing the Champagne War. Fiona, thank you so much for being on The Right Way. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you to, um, to you for asking me and to your listeners. Absolutely, thank you. So, I wanted to start with a question I always like to ask, is where did the idea for the Champagne War originate from? My goodness, you know, it was sort of like a um, a lot of little jigsaw pieces coming together. Hmm. It, it sort of started quite a few years ago when I was researching a different book, but I was in sort of north um, of France looking at the battlefields, and um, I could see that the Champagne region wasn't too far away from where we were, and so I took a day trip to just sort of break the cycle of research, which can be very harrowing when you're doing battle um, and trench sort of warfare and learning mm. about it. So I took this lovely day um, out in the vineyards of Epinay. And, you know, I, I'd been there before, but I hadn't been there for a long time and reminded myself of just how beautiful and inspiring the region is. And I happened to go to Reims, which is the um, major city. And um, it's a cathedral city that has crowned all the kings of France. And walking down that grand nave, I realized there was this glorious exhibition, a photographic exhibition, and it was all about World War I and how the people of this city that was all but raised to the ground during World War I, I think there were only 22 buildings left um, by the end of it, how they turned their life upside down and they lived a subterranean life for four years in the champagne cellars Mm. that ran in that network of tunnels below the city. and it captured my imagination. But it just sat there, and this is how it happens for me. It just sat there in the back of my mind that, wow, that's interesting, and there is a story there. Um, and then um, I was talking to my publisher a year later and sort of running through some ideas, and she said, oh, gosh, I'd love a champagne story from you. That would be brilliant. And so I climbed on a plane, and I went back to this region, and I am a firm believer of never planning anything. Um, I know that scares a lot of people and certainly scares my publisher, but I just uh, put myself in the way of a story. I, I just turn up into the region that I've chosen um, to where I will be sort of armchair traveling my readers and just put myself there on the streets and I just wait for the story to find me. And find me it did in the shape of a, um, a wonderful woman I met by pure chance on the street of Epinay, and she turned out to be a sixth-generation champenoise who'd learned um, about making champagne, um, about grapes, about vineyards, about everything connected with this industry at the knee of her father and her grandfather. And she inherited this champagne house 
and she was quite quite a force in her own right. She's a widow, um, you know, she'd raised her family on her own, and so it all just came together in this perfect storm of um, inspiration for me, and I thought, you know, here is, here's my character, and my story is World War One, and how um, this character 100 years ago would have uh, confronted the survival of herself and the people around her and her vineyards and her industry. Amazing. I, I can't believe this chance encounter with this, this, this woman as well. That almost kind of like seems like the basis for Sophie even before you put pen to paper. But um, I wanted Fiona as well about your research because I remember I've interviewed you before a few years ago actually for the tea gardens yeah. for the big issue. And I remember you telling me at the time uh, the, the level of research in which you go to, uh, namely going to the locations no matter what where they are or how exotic they are. Yeah. To, to conduct yep. your research, but for something, yep. uh, I assume that you must have conducted loads of research. How is it that you kind of uh, decide what goes in or what's relevant, and uh, how do you sort of yeah. uh, do that? Uh, it's a good question, actually, because it's a um, that's the real uh, balancing act that um, you know an author has to make. Mm. Is all right, I've, I've learnt all this information, and for me, it was three years of work on this book, two wow. solid years of research, but the actual conversation with all the people who are going to help me started three years out where I started contacting the um, war historian who was going to uh, help me find my trench network and the, read the topographical maps with me and find the exact company that my um, soldier was going to belong to and all, I mean, there's so much stuff just on mm. that alone. Um, that's a whole strand all of its own. Then you have to learn about champagne, the industry, not just now, but um, back back in the day, and then also during the war. So that's three separate sort of time frames for champagne. Then you have to understand, you know, being a vigneron, not just a champenoise, but being a vigneron. And then you have to think about the politics at, at the time and, the, and, you know, where was the front line? You know, the Western Front, where exactly was this front line? And mm. where were the soldiers coming from? Where were they deploying from? And where were they being sent from? Not just as fresh soldiers, but were weary soldiers who mm. were being transferred from somewhere else. So it goes, it's just like, there's no other way to describe it. It's just an abyss of mm. um, information that you have to gather up. And then you're faced with this ton of um, information that you now have at your fingertips. And it becomes a very fine balancing act of how much of this does the reader actually need to know to enjoy the story or to feel the world um, building around them and so really yeah i mean that is the skill that's my skill i suppose as, as the storyteller that i have to say well okay i've got all of this but i actually only need um a little bit from there just to sprinkle like a spice around the pages because otherwise i risk boring the reader um so yeah i mean it is you you gather it all up and then um, you know, your heart breaks because you have to cut, honestly, nine-tenths of it will be left behind on the cutting room floor, so to speak, because you just don't need to bash your reader over the head with as much information that you need in order to build the world for them. Right. So does that mean that you have earlier drafts that are substantially larger or do you, have you already pared it back uh, prior to even... <laughs> Yeah, so for me, I've already paired it back before first draft even goes off to market. Right. I mean, I, I, my uh, editor does get the first draft, and by then I've already done... She, she wouldn't have a clue of how much I've actually 
um, considered and left behind or written in and then taken out or or just ignored. Um, most of it, though, um, it, it sounds like it sounds like a sad process. It's not. It's actually, um, it's the most enriching part of the whole process of writing is that me as a person, I've been enriched by all this information and that's mm. all well and good and it's wonderful and I've been freshly educated, but now it's time to just um, ease out of myself the bare necessity to, because I cannot ever escape the fact that I'm in the business of entertaining someone on the end of this book. They have to feel entertained, absorbed, they have to be transported, they have to feel completely lost in these pages and the minute you start to give them a lecture about something, they'll switch off, they'll close it, they'll close that book and they'll find something else that is more distracting. So, um, you know, nothing is a, uh, there is no higher compliment to me than somebody saying, I just couldn't put it down. Every time I thought, right, just one more chapter, I found myself on the next chapter. And that means I've got it right. You know, I, I've got them by the throat and, and they ha I haven't let them go, you know. Um, I've kept the pace going and I haven't bored them. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's a very positive attitude to have towards the uh, the pairing back process. It's almost, I don't know if the same days would apply of kill your darlings when it comes to research, but still, <laughs> nevertheless, I mean, obviously, as you just mentioned, three something years of of pretty pretty extensive research, exhaustive research is certainly nothing to be sneezed at, let alone easily parted with. No, and I think um, maybe a new writer um, suffers more than maybe I do because um, when you're new to this, and, and particularly in historical fiction where you do absolutely give your all and you gather up, I mean, you just spend so much money on books and then you spend so much money on the travel and the... Um, you know, and this, this actual book took four trips to France and I know a lot of the listeners will be thinking, yeah, that's a nice wicket to be on, you know, <laughs> to, to, to travel. Um, but a lot of the time I'm sort of, as I said, I'm walking over a boggy marshland with a, a historian in a freezing um, February and um, wishing I wasn't there. A lot of it is not as enjoyable as maybe it sounds. So you do all those hard yards and, and then you have to come home and say, okay, that was my work. That's that's what I'm paid to do. And now um, I have to let go of all of that and just pick out this, the really sparkly pertinent bits that are going to add weight to this story or lift up this story or blow oxygen into this story. So yeah, I think a, a newer writer would uh, feel regret and think, um, fall into the trap of thinking, well, I've done all this work and now people have to understand how much has gone into this. Mm. See, I gave that up, you know, uh, you know, many, many books ago. I've never felt like that. In fact, it, it was when I was writing fantasy. I gave up that feeling of saying, I've learned all this, you should know it. I just think that's not your... It's not your worry. It's it's my business how much I put into the learning. I mm. just have to make sure that you're entertained. A much healthier attitude to have, I think, with, with parting with that. Yeah. Exactly. Now, let's talk about, you mentioned sparkly bits, but I want to talk, because there is a lot of light in the Champagne War, but there is obviously a lot of darkness as well, given the nature of the, the setting. Uh, yeah. The depiction of war. I mean, the first time in which uh, the, the war is really depicted is when it's the release of, uh, from a German infantryman's perspective, releasing the, uh, I think it's, it's green, gas as, as I understand it, yeah, it wasn't chlorine. my gas it was green gas it's the very first time that chlorine gas was um, used and it was uh, I think the Germans were utterly shocked by um, the invention I think it's Fritz Haber who went on to win an, a Nobel Prize um, so this chemist invented this killing gas and hmm. they didn't know how it was going to perform and they 
gave it a whirl and it was um, utterly significant. I mean, it, it just killed, it killed so many, it injured so many, it traumatized so many. I mean, um, the allies were essentially on the run um, during when that happened and it was just shock all round. And I needed to somehow, um, I needed a different angle into the war. I've written about the war a lot, and I thought this gave me a fresh perspective at it, and to show it from the German point of view was quite an intriguing approach to take. But also that the shock was with the pacifist um, back home in essential services, the chemist who uh, realizes the next step is going to be the British government is going to ask him and his team to devise something more lethal, more horrific, uh, more capable of killing um, in bigger numbers. And so I um, decided that was a, an interesting angle to take for my lead one of my lead characters. And um, it seemed to work quite well and give me entree into a very dark part of the war um, and just from a different perspective, so to speak. And I'm glad you mentioned it because, um, you know, th these were very dark times mm. and it needs to be shown I mean the reader does need to share the horror um, that these men all of them German and um, otherwise were going through um, every soldier didn't want to be there um, you know everyone thought they'd be home for Christmas no one wanted to be there any longer they could barely uh, remember why they were there or what, what they were fighting for. So um, I think there is that darkness that must be confronted and explored. But then my job, very much so, was to counterbalance that um, for the reader and bring them out into the light and add all that, uh, some, some a romantic feel to the book, but also add the sort of effervescence that the champagne brings to the story. Absolutely. But it does sound like from the outset, Fiona, that you did have the, the mindset of ensuring that you wouldn't shy away from the depiction of the atrocities, because I mean, for the, for the, at least for the first half of the book, there's, there's quite a lot, um, as told from what Jerome and Charlie Nash experienced throughout. So, so was that something that you already had cemented firmly in your mind when you proceeded to start writing that you wanted to obviously fully depict these, uh, these atrocities as such? Uh, no, because I never have anything firm in my mind. Uh, if I'm really honest with you, mm. I, I really don't plan anything. I just set out on the journey. And, you know, I it, that is how it just unfolded for me, that I was trying to um, follow Charlie's story and, uh, you know, this terror for Jerome and mm. um, the sort of the people left behind, what what happens to these people left behind as well it's not just the, the soldiers that are going through it it's, it's the people and the not knowing you know world war one there was so little communication you just didn't know what was happening to the people you loved and yeah i wanted the more i wrote about it i couldn't quite let go you know mm. i i knew i was very aware as i was casting this book that the scenes the darker scenes were taking up quite a big chunk mm. and they were a lot longer in the opening draft. I mean, I have really hacked away at those scenes over five big drafts um, to just find that balance where there's enough to, to break your heart and make you understand how um, just tremendously awful um, this was for every man involved and, and the women involved um, over there. But, uh, you know, I, I, I knew, I was very aware that I was going into this real dark hole with um, 
with Charlie in particular, and especially his mindset. So it's not just what he's seeing and what he's having to um, survive. It's also his mindset is very dark, and he's inviting a bullet at every turn. I mean, he's mm-hmm. trying to get killed. He's hoping there's a piece of artillery with his name on it or a, or a bullet with his name on it, and he's almost daring um, death all the time. And so that gives him that almost sense of, I don't know, it's not an invincibility, but it's resignation that mm. this is it, you know, and I, and I don't care because I, I, I don't want to be here anymore and I don't know why I'm here doing this. And I don't want to kill that man over there. I've got no beef with that German over there. Mm. Um, you know, so I think that was part of what I was trying to explore. And we show that through that sort of vignette with him and Willie mm. um, in, in the barge. Um, Absol- later on in the story absolutely I mean that was certainly one of my favourite components of it or elements particularly because um, I liked the fact that you didn't shy away from from taking the time to and as you said as you mentioned like the there was a sizable chunk of the story um, does depict that and I'm glad in which you did take that or made that decision to do that because I think you did that quite deftly you did briefly just also touch on, or you mentioned the effervescence of the champagne. I wanted to talk about that as well because I actually found uh, that to be the setting itself was strong, but this the champagne, the champagne itself within this setting, uh, this like ties the bind of the the, the citizens that have made there with the land. I wanted to explore that with you because I found that to be one of the strongest elements as well. I mean. Um, Jerome obviously has the cork, uh, the champagne cork on him um, throughout. Not just him, though. I mean, Sophie's dedication, risking life and limb, um, along with her uh, other dozens there to obviously harvest um, the grapes. All of that, I wanted to see what it was you wanted to depict because you've, you've done it well in terms of this inexorable and unquenchable devotion to the champagne what was it that you wanted to capture or depict there and what was it that you maybe picked up on your research that uh, you wanted to convey like that because you've done that quite strongly well that was all connected with sophie the real sophie my champenoise my sixth generation champenoise that i bumped into on the avenue de champagne and uh, you know when i sat down with her and listened to her Mm. um over you know, four long visits. Um, every time Sophie spoke about champagne, she'd become um, a little distant in her voice, and it would take her tone would take on an almost romantic tone. And every time she spoke about her father's cellar, or walking out into the vineyards, or balancing the sugars, or the riddling. I mean, she she became, there was a passion there, and it really struck home when she said to me, and I, I, I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember exactly how she said it, but really what she was conveying is that the thing about champagne, and I suppose you could attach that to any sort of wine or spirit, but we're talking about champagne here. She said, I can taste the lives of the people who have given their work and their toil to this champagne. Mm. She said, I can actually taste it. I can taste the people here. I can taste the land that they've worked. I can taste what they've planted around us. I can taste their laughter and I can Mm. taste their, their children and their weddings and their deaths. And she said, and especially their deaths, people who've died, given their lives to 
our family champagne fields and and she said they've they've lived a long fruitful life and they're here in the champagne and they live on in the champagne because the champagne goes on it you know it might sit quietly for 10 years or whatever and as she said that you know i just it's like i just sighed out everything and i thought i've got it i've got you know there it is mm. there's the kernel of what i'm going to try and somehow encapsulate into this story so it's a very romantic very um whimsical almost spiritual um sort of idea that's floating around this story that so many lives are in each bottle of champagne and it becomes all the more poignant when you read this book and you know people are actually dying in the vineyards because they're being bombed mm. or they're you know stray stray artillery is coming their way and killing people who would otherwise um, are not not you know part of the sort of front line they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time and so they're dying and their blood into the land you know that will nourish those vineyards in, in years to come sort of thing it just it had to be weaved into the story and so that's I, I think that's what you're referring to and, mm -hmm. and that, that was a very important part of what I was trying to write Spiritual is definitely the world, the, the right way to put it, I'd think. Uh, I was like this prevailing dedication that's almost beyond words in terms of this tie to the land and what it flourishes and produces. It's, yeah, I was so interested in that because it's it, it really shined through, not just with the sense of place, but with the, the actual champagne itself. Um, yes, I mean, I do, I do, I mean, I, I sort of uh, worked on that, I really massage that. I know by giving the great, each grape a personality and um, you know how they come into this perfect concert within the bottle. And I, I, I was aware of what I was doing, but it, it felt right. It didn't feel in any way toy or too cute or anything. I mean, it what it has done for everyone I know who's read the book and contacted me is saying, you know, it was such an emotional read, this mm -hmm. book. And, um, and I think that, it, all of that did its job, you know, in just tearing at the heartstrings. So it's not just the killing and the survival and the death and and the the trenches. Even the the champagne itself is quite emotional, you know. Even the lightest passages can sort of choke you up slightly. Um, and, and I think that's you know that's great. Yeah, I readily agree with you. I mean, particularly um, Charlie's discussion with uh several of the of the the people that are preparing the champagne with him as well as the descriptions of taste and at one point i think charlie described sophie as as champagne like champagne um some of the loveliest passages that you've written there fiona are definitely related to that and it's actually um i mean you, you've tackled quite a lot of stuff that's innately uh difficult to try to properly realize like warfare being one but taste as well and that's to your merit that you've done that because uh, i think that you've done an incredible job with that Thank you. Um, I want to Thank talk you. about... No worries. Uh, I want to talk about Sophie a little bit because another thing while I'm on the same subject of talking about war or books that can be about war is I feel that uh, a, a large amount uh, can be quite male-centric in that there's not really... Uh, there's not really that many female characters. If they are, then they're kind of like the antiquated damsel in distress albeit someone that needs rescuing whereas Sophie herself and I got the impression that she was somewhat uh, representative or emblematic of uh, the, the women within that province of that time and to me obviously now that I've now learnt that uh, you had a real life Sophie that you were talking to I wondered uh, 
if that was something that you also were going into uh, from the outset, obviously you don't prepare that much, but with this this character of Sophie, I wondered if she was to be uh, representative of perhaps an untung hero that we don't hear too much of within these sort of stories about war. Well, I think, uh, you know, if you uh, sat down a hundred women or even 10 women in a room and said, do you want, do you want to read a book about a weak woman, or do you want to read about hmm. a strong woman? And if you did that to men as well, I said, do you want to read about weak women or strong women? I think everybody would agree we need someone who's got um, some spine and is going to push back against the norms because that makes it more entertaining. Okay. I mean, she embodies um, how you'd imagine you'd like to be if you were in that situation. I mean, everything is against Sophie, everything. Mm. I mean, apart from that, look, she's wealthy. We know that. They're unashamedly wealthy. But the, the thing about war is that it cuts everybody down to size. And it's not. it doesn't matter how much wealth you've got, it's not going to spare you, your loved ones. If they're at the front, they can catch that bullet as much as anybody else can. So um, the wealth was really aside, and she uses her wealth to help everybody else as best she can. So really, when you take that out of the equation, you've just got a woman who is having to fight a battle on every front, not just the war, but mentally she's having to fight, emotionally she's having to survive, um, physically she's having to push herself to limits that are you know, unheard of. But then she is, as you say, indicative and representative of all those women in that time. All the men were at the front. All the French signed up and off they went. And the women were left behind and they had to, as in other wars, women have to take up the slack and do all those jobs. And I needed to show them not that sort of super typical um, kind of, you know, saluting in their um, boiler suits and... and, uh, Playing around with plane engines and things mm, like this. Mm. It had to be a more, I wanted it to be a completely different environment. And this is underneath the ground, um, trying to patch up soldiers and send them back out, or just trying to keep their um, children alive, um, keep the elderly alive, keep the whole industry of champagne going. So you've got women riddling, and I hope that you're. Um, <laughs> Your listeners will maybe look up what riddling means, but, you know, riddling the champagne bottles to the tune of like 30,000 bottles each a day just to stay ahead, just to make sure that that champagne is going to be as perfect as it should be um, in peacetime. And so I tried to home in on all those angles to show Sophie as being very strong, um, very... uh, uh, resilient I suppose it's not so much strength it's just her courage all the time to just set aside whatever is crushing her and say there are that this is a bigger picture it's it's not just me I mean she's very well aware that she wants to climb into a hole and and sob of course she does but um it's a bigger picture because she knows every woman if she looks around is going through the same thing and there's no room for her to um capitulate she has to um, set the standard, so to speak, because if she falls over emotionally, th- what, what are they going to fight for? Um, so they're all looking to her as some sort of emblem of, of how to behave, how to get through this. And I think I use Sophie as a sort of a continuation of the other very strong women who have shown themselves to be absolute um, diamonds in the champagne industry. So there's Madame Pomeray and there's Verve Clicquot, the widow Clicquot, both of those women um, before her in decades down um, inherited from their husbands and did something extraordinary 
extraordinary um, or several extraordinary things in the champagne industry and just took, um, you know, in a man's world, just stood it on its head and did different, daring, creative um, innovations within the industry. And I wanted Sophie to be that person so that she continues that sort of tradition because there is a pattern there of women in the champagne industry. And, um, yeah, so I think on an entertainment level, we can't have someone shy and retiring because it just won't work but also in real life I think it's it's inspiring and I think this is a I don't know maybe I'm drawing too many conclusions here but it's almost like a book for our times because we're going through pretty dark times in the world right now mm. and uh, we need to dig deep and find that courage um, and it's it's not a, it's a different sort of war I mean it's like we are the ones left behind and we, we're fighting this thing we can't see but it's affecting our uh, our freedom it's affecting our um, stability it's affecting our um, friendships and family and our ability to see the people we love so it it just feels like a book of the times so mm. to speak but in a, in a in a sort of skewed way. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't think you're drawing too many conclusions there, and it is interesting that you do make that um, that sort of comparison because I, I feel that similarly as well, and I always find that so interesting when there's historical fiction that does do that, where it's uh, contemporary uh, or, or seemingly uh, can, can easily apply to contemporary life uh, like that. Indeed. Um, yeah, indeed. Yeah. Also, uh, you, you mentioned about, obviously, um, strong within the champagne industry but also you've you've included um uh, historical uh people as well outside of it including marie i'm gonna i don't want to butcher her surname but marie curie is, is that how it's yes, that's right. yeah. pronounced? she's uh, she was just so interesting i mean i happened upon her whilst i was researching um and it just pinged in my mind i thought wow look at this woman look what she did she was from Poland, she only spoke Polish, she came to France and, the, and she wanted to study and the only way she could study at the Sorbonne was to learn French. So she, um, just like that, learned French and mm. then won the Nobel Prize with her husband for, um, what was it, uh, physics or something. Mm. And then in her own right, she won a, a second Nobel Prize chemistry in her research for radium and x-rays and I just she was just so astonishing and when I looked at the dates I thought oh my gosh she is there she's walking around in my time and so I'm gonna have to just have this chance meeting between her and Sophie and bring her into the pages just in a small cameo role just bring her into the pages weave her in so um, the reader can say, oh my gosh, I didn't know that about Madame Curie. I didn't know that she uh, invented the mobile um, x-ray ambulance and drove all these, had all these cars driven to the front um, with her daughter and, and were able to x-ray these injured men and, and give a much better... Um, um, they could heal better because mm. people could see what was actually wrong with them. She took the guesswork out of it. She was an extraordinary person, really, and I thought, I just can't leave it alone. And so, yeah, it was fun to do that. I didn't want to push too strongly on that, but she walks into the pages and now, and it's a lovely, lovely little vignette for her. 
it's a good description of that uh, walking into the pages. I did find that as well, and that was one of my favourite elements. That uh, because I, I I knew nothing about it admittedly, and that's what I made uh, I found to be so edifying as well as entertaining that uh, you actually included a real life historical figure. We did so without uh, kind of drawing attention to it. It was it wasn't contrived. It was actually yeah, like you said, within the context, it was woven in there. So that was to your credit. I was very impressed by that. I did like that, and it did kind of prompt me to go and go and do a little bit of research thereafter as well. Yeah, and that's what I hope will happen to readers. I mean, I'm not trying to give anyone a history lesson, but if I can just ping something in you as you're reading, you think, gee, I didn't know that. I'm gonna I'm gonna look a little bit more into this. And it just it's it's so simple. We sit behind screens and we can just Google whatever we want and, and I think a lot of my readers just love that. They think, Oh, I Googled that it was it was great. I didn't know that I've learned something and if if you can achieve that and it doesn't take too much time or pressure or make their brains bleed because you've, you've put this in, you've done something, haven't you? You've Indeed. added a little, uh, you know, little um, fresh piece of education without really making it obvious or, or too burdensome. Absolutely. Very well put. Very well put. Fiona, let's talk about your craft because you've been doing this for a long time now. You've produced uh, a lot of novels of all disparate sort of genres, but I really wanted to know and I wanted to delve into the kind of challenges or the largest obstacles that you've faced in order to continue writing, be it with this particular book or any of your other works. What's a standout to you whereby you've encountered some sort of issue with your writing where it was quite a challenge that you had to face and, and overcome in order to keep doing it? Yeah, I think, um, interestingly enough, uh, the challenge for me um, was on this book. Oh, so okay. I've sailed through, yeah, it's good timing you asked that question. I've sailed through, I think, you know, 38 books, sort of, I don't want to say cruising through, but no real drama, you know, just um, the stories are flying, everything's great. And this book, it just... Uh, I'm not saying it halted, but Hmm. it wasn't, the first draft did not look anything like the fifth draft because Hmm. um, a couple of things were in play. Firstly, um, my father died as I was Hmm. writing this book and I was very close to my dad and it was just a real, uh, you know, it just sent shockwaves through me because it was um, unexpected. So it, it happened. Um, and when that happens, you can't find perspective on it. You're, you're just in shock. And so uh, it didn't halt me. Um, not, I didn't lose any ground at all in terms of the writing. And the reason that is so is because I used the writing as my distraction, as my uh, haven. Mm-hmm. You know, it was where I retreated to was the, was the writing desk. And so I kept writing through, even though my publishers thought, well, we probably won't get a book from Fiona this year, but they got a book. They were astonished, except there was something about it that wasn't quite right. And we moved through, I think it was three, three full drafts. Maybe we were, I knew there'd be another draft because you've always got to do this very big sort of copy edit. So mm. I'd done three full drafts and each time it had come back and my publisher was very brave to actually say to me, it's not quite right, Fiona. I don't know what it is. Look, we could publish this. And she said it several times. I could publish this right now. It's so publishable it's lovely and your readers will love it but she said there's something missing from here and she said you know we all know what you've been through and um and so i thought no that's not good enough Mm -hmm. it's not fair that my readers have to suffer you know what i'm suffering and so 
I kept, I couldn't find it. I couldn't, but, but I knew what she was saying. I knew something was missing, but I couldn't see it. And then it was just a casual comment by um, a younger editor who just sort of said to my editor, just in passing, literally going home for Friday night, just leaving, leaving the building and just sort of said over her shoulder, you know, one thing that's quite interesting, Fiona always has a villain in their stories and there isn't one in this story. And so my my editor said, "Oh, but it's the war, isn't it? It's the war that's the the villain here." Mm. And she said, "Yeah, yeah, no, I know, but there's always someone you can sort of hiss and boo at in in the pages when they come in." And um, and, you know, and then it, it was forgotten. Everybody forgot about that. I'm I'm none the wiser. But luckily, my editor in a in a conversation mentioned it. She just said, I don't know if it's going to mean it, uh, you know, that Amanda said this. And as she said it, it was like, I mean, it was quite funny. It was like a Monty Python sketch. It was like a chorus of angels suddenly started singing and that, you know, um, sort of spotlights sort of lit up from my keyboard and lit my face golden and I had this special crack grin because of course I understood straight away there was no villain and that's what was missing from the story and I knew instantly instantly who the villain was going to be and I said to Ali give me a week um she said what are you going to do I said just sit tight and in one week I rewrote the story and I put um you know this character in that people sort of tend to enjoy loathing as I did too and I don't want to spoil it mm-hmm. but he just brought so much to the story you know he brought the tension he brought all that he brought that real um slimy sort of background Machiavellian sort of uh, manipulation that's going on and again a woman cornered by a man who thinks well I've got you now you know I've got all I hold all the power and it's up to Sophie to push back against that power Mm. and it just added this whole new dimension to the story and the minute he's in these pages I mean I sent it off as I say, a few days later, and I could, I could hear them all cheering in Melbourne. And I thought, yeah, I know. And fireworks went off, and I, I felt really good about it that we got there. And it wasn't anything to do with my father or anything. It was just, you know, it was just a hard, hard book to write. This one, there was a, there were four big trips, as I say, to mm. France. So that takes its pound of flesh. There was a mountain of research to do. That it took three years. Um, two of that was just deep, deep research, and mm. just this five times, this five drafts to get it right. Um, so I'm very, um, I don't know what the word is, I, I don't want to say proud, but I'm very delighted that the response coming back from readers is, is just so positive, and they can sort of almost sense the work that's gone into it. I mean, they can sort of feel the weight of this story on them, and they don't want to let it go as quickly as maybe some other stories they let go faster, but this you know, Sophie's still with them and her decision that she has to make and, and um, her trials and tribulations. And, you know, it's, it's, it's got more, um, it's got a lot of heart, this book. Well, delightful is the app word for it. I find that astonishing and staggering that uh, within a week you kind of uh, formulated or, or came up with the, the, or determined who was going to be the villain. I'm pretty sure that we're talking about the same person. You haven't named them, so I won't either. But uh, they were absolutely, yeah. uh, they weren't just this kind of mustachio twirling, uh, lashing yeah. Sophie to the train tracks type uh, nah. archetypal character. No, they were really well developed. So I find that, yeah, particularly staggering, oh, he, Fiona, that you've done tracks, that. I mean, we 
we know it's a he, but he came into my mind as that chorus of angels and the spotlight, uh, you know, from the keyboard. He, he just arrived fully formed. He just walked in and I thought, my goodness, where have you been? Why couldn't I see you weren't here? And he'd always been there. He was there from, um, you know, if you, from the very opening of the book, mm. he was there. I just hadn't noticed him, you know, and so... Um, it, it was wonderful he added this dimension and I agree with you he's he's quite a um, he's quite a well-rounded character and mm. you can see him quite easily mm. and he's very well developed and sort of I think a lot of people uh, the readers might want him to be punished a bit more uh, certainly my editor did she said oh come on we're all waiting for but I thought yeah you, you mm. know if you were writing an episode of 24 you might sort of <laughs> matches down his fingernails but it's just not who this woman is because she certainly makes him pay in her own way and it's a very female way that she handles it I love that it's a very it's how a woman's mind would work it's very very sort of cunning Um, and I like that I just liked it um, about how she handled it and that she kept her dignity absolutely yeah. I think it was a very fitting end. I think anything else like you, you're mentioning there would be gratuitous. So no, no, no. I think that you, you, you've definitely done what should be put in there. Um, yeah. Look, I mean, you've written so many different works and so many different genres, but the main one in which you, you seem to like coming back to or draws your most interest time and time again is historical fiction or fiction set within a historical setting. What is it about that, Fiona? What is it that captivates you regardless of what era, what location? What, what is it that keeps bringing you back to it? Because it's inherently, I would argue, probably up and down, that it's it's more taxing and trying than other genres, say something that's set within a contemporary framework or something more formulaic in a crime genre, for example, than that. What, what is it that brings you back to it time and time again? Um, to, uh, sorry, and this is to historical, you mean, not just wartime years, you just mean historical fiction. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, look, I just think there are no mobile phones in it. You know, it's mm. as simple as that. When you've got mobile phones and computer technology, it actually damages your ability to um, create a lot of... It's a different kind of drama you have to create. Mm-hmm. You know, once you've got technology working against your characters or on behalf of your characters, everything gets a lot easier because you could just shrug and say, well, Sophie would have just picked up a fan and said, um, mm. you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, firstly, I need to work in an era where there is very low technology, you know, and for me, steam engines and, you know, Hong Kong automobiles just fits the bill really well. Mm. I also like that, um, you know, the war years, and I mean both world wars, and the war and the years in between these were very dramatic years for the world uh, you know um, people lived hard and fast and loved hard because there was so much uncertainty mm. um, but also the industrial revolution that happened and so there was a lot of um, positivity as well so I just I just love where the world was at in in this era of say um, 1910 through to 1945 um, and it gives you this very dramatic backdrop to play your characters and your dramas out against. So mm. you could say it's laziness, but I keep going back to this era that um, it's already a lot of drama unfolding and it makes it fun. I sort of also, for my readers, I think we loved the, the fashions of that time. We loved mm. the manners of the time. We loved the 
the, the fact that women were pushing back against society at this time. Um, I think just the whole era is a bit more polite and also you can you have to achieve what you're going to achieve almost in the shadows because women couldn't just come right out and burn their bras in no. that time and, and just sort of say, you know, I am woman, hear me raw kind of thing. It had to be sort of working um, behind the scenes a lot and mm. still not losing their dignity, not losing their graciousness, um, you know, still upholding their, their what was expected of them, but working in the background. And I that adds a layer of intrigue and suspense and tension for me to play with, you know. Um, so... I keep coming back to it. It's not because I'm a feminist or anything. I just find it um, an easier playground. And so much development was going on. I can take my story anywhere. Mm. You know, I can pick on any year something was happening that was really exciting, or I can pick on any sort of subject matter to hang my story off. And it just seems to work for me. Mm. I like that you mentioned that it's it's you you might have chosen these areas as well because the technology isn't there and you said with the Hong Kong of the car the Hong Kong cars and such because I I must agree with that I mean I do find that uh, enables rather than having to keep up or to pick the latest of technologies or you know bound by that um, those sort of structures yeah. you you can focus on human relationships and complexities so yeah okay that's really interesting. I also, I also think, you know, in all honesty, I think the world is, uh, at the moment, it moves so fast, um, children grow up so fast, mm. technology is happening, you know, as you blink, there's something else. Mm. I think there's a real nostalgia for um, a quieter era. And I think it's not just the boomers who, who are sort of like um, remembering the good old days. I think... You know, there are even millennials who are thinking, you know, you had it so good, you lot, kind of thing. So I think there's a, there is a sense of nostalgia, and it's why we binge The Crown, and we binge Downton Abbey, and we binge, um, I don't know, Queen's Gambit, anything that's set, you know, in a, in a quieter time. Uh, we just, we can't stop devouring it, I think. But it's just my take. I'm not saying we don't love our futuristic stuff, but mm. that also, if it's really futuristic, you can't touch it because it's it's too far in the future. So that makes it fascinating anyway. The contemporary stuff, um, we sort of we just devour a lot of crime because mm. the world's a dark place, you know, um, at times. And I'm not a I'm not someone who lives in the shadows. I really do uh, live in the light. But I certainly play with the shadows when I'm writing. I'm glad you do. Look, last question I'll ask you, Fiona, is, and I mean, I know that you do quite a lot of classes and teaching of, of writing and have done for quite a number of years. What advice would you give to aspiring authors, regardless of what genre? What do you think uh, transcends or applies to all aspiring authors? What advice could you give? Um, you know, I'm asked this all the time, and I always come back to the same thing, and that is discipline. Mm. It is the only thing you can rely on that will get you through. Um, and if I hadn't stayed really disciplined through those five drafts, I would have given up. You know, because in the frame of mind I was in when I was writing The Champagne War, it, I had the perfect excuse and no one would have said anything. Everyone said, of course, of course, you know, you're grieving and this. Uh, I just never, ever give myself an excuse mm. to not 
sit down and write. And it's too easy to make excuses. And you can say, you know, I'm briefing, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not feeling very well. I look, I've got young children. I've got family. I've got. I'm young, I've got a social life. Well, fine, but and no one's asked you actually to write this book anyway. Mm. So stop thinking that we're all sweating on you producing this manuscript. Now, that's harsh advice, but it's, a, it's the real truth. Commercial fiction um, is about um, regular publication. It's about everybody making money from mm. your manuscript, everyone, including you. And that's not going to happen if you only bring out a book now and then or you don't deliver on your deadlines or um you know you make excuses so the whole point of if you're going to get on this bandwagon and you see yourself as as a as a writer who wants to work in the commercial fiction uh, space you have to get really disciplined because it's a job it's hmm. not it's not a pastime it's not a hobby it might have to feel like one at the beginning because you'll be juggling your full-time job and your new baby and your family and your you know social life and your everything else that goes with life you have to still make money and look after your family but you've also got to carve out time by making other sacrifices to actually sit down at the keyboard and push out new words and therein is the trick new words not tinkering with the old words because that's the trap that so many people fall into they just start putting their editor's hat on after chapter one and they want mm. to go back and tinker and, you know, admire their fabulous work. Whereas I've already, you know, I will have roared through 10 chapters by the time they've um, still admiring their work in chapter one. So the professionals just get on with it and, um, you know, they get it out, get a skeleton out um, and they're very disciplined about it. Absolutely. Um, excellent advice. Excellent advice. Look, Fiona, thank you so much for appearing on The Right Way. I greatly appreciate it. I greatly appreciate your candor and you sharing that story as well. Um, thank you again. I mean, the Champagne War was brilliant. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed that. I thoroughly enjoyed the Tea Gardens. I think you are an exceptional writer. And I, it was a pleasure. And I was really, really lucky to talk to you today. And I think everyone's going to be really, really lucky that listens to this as well. So thank you so much. You're lovely. Thanks ever so much, and um, everyone out there listening, stay safe and uh, enjoy your wonderful Christmas. I think we're going to be all borders open and our families all together. So, folks, that marks the conclusion to my interview with the lovely Fiona McIntosh. Be sure to go and get your copy of The Champagne War now. It's out with the Penguin Random House Publishing House. Uh, available at all good bookstores. As for me, I'm going to be having my next program uh, guest, as yet unannounced guest. Surprise, surprise, get excited to be coming up in the coming weeks uh, in the interim. Please be sure to listen to my first episode if you haven't already. And of course, much appreciated if you follow. And yeah, continue sending me good vibes, continue listening and continue reading and putting pen to paper in rapid succession if that is what you do with your life. Thank you.